We're going to continue in Luke chapter 16 this morning, uh, picking up with verse 19, this account of the rich man and Lazarus. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue. For I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things, but now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Father, bring this word to our hearts today and strengthen me, Father, as I speak it. As we were saying last week, this whole chapter is about money. It opens with the parable about the unrighteous steward. Jesus' point is to underscore the link between money and spirituality. He indicated that man must love God and use money instead of using God and loving money. But because of his teaching, the Pharisees ridiculed him, as we read in verse 14. They scoffed at him, which brings upon them the rebuke of Jesus, as he points out their hypocrisy, not only in regard to money, but in regard to the law as a whole, which is what his comments about divorce are doing. Following that rebuke, Jesus tells this story now of the rich man and Lazarus. We can look at this story as kind of a stage play. 
it opens up in scenes for us. There is in scene one a great contrast. In scene two, a great reversal. And in scene three, a great debate. The story opens up with scene one, this great contrast, describing two men here on earth. There is an unnamed man who enjoys ostentatious wealth. Tradition has given him the name Divis, or Dives. But that's just the Latin word for rich man. It's not a proper name. You can be pretty sure that's not the name his mother gave him. The combination of purple, which was the costliest dye of that day, and fine linen, which in this time was worth more than six times its weight in gold, describes for us this ostentatious luxury in which this man lived. No doubt he sat at a very well-set table filled with the finest foods. And Jesus makes it a point of telling us that this was normal. At the end of verse 19, we read that he lived in splendor every day. He's not described here as having committed any kind of atrocious sin, but he seems to have lived a hollow and superficial life, concerned only with self-indulgence, unconcerned with God or the people around him who were poor and in need, some of whom lay at his gate to beg. Now in contrast, Jesus introduces us to another man. This man does have a name. His name is Lazarus. And Lazarus is on the other end of the economic spectrum. Lazarus, whose name means God is my helper, suffers each and every day in the deepest poverty. This is not the Lazarus whom Jesus raised from the dead, but perhaps Jesus borrowed the name for this story from his good friend whom he had raised. His name is an early hint that though this Lazarus is a very poor man, he is also a godly man. But even though he is a godly man, he is a sick and hungry man, his body covered with sores. As we so often see in the New Testament, when someone is in this condition, the only means they have of surviving is to beg. And of course, in order to get anything, you had to be where the people were. And so quite often, a friend or family member would bring the sick or crippled person to the temple or some other place where those with means might be passing by, might have their hearts touched and offer them something. Well, someone laid Lazarus at this rich man's gate, where Lazarus hoped to be fed with Whatever crumbs fell from the rich man's table were not actually told whether or not he received these crumbs. Only that he longed for them. Verse 21. The only relief 
which we do know came to this man, was from the dogs who came and licked his sores. By the way, this story alone should be sufficient to dispel the heresy that has captured so many today, known as the health and wealth gospel, the prosperity gospel. Here is a man who had neither health nor wealth, but was clearly beloved of God and enjoyed God's blessing in eternity. In scene two, you have a great reversal that takes place. Both men die. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment. So first the poor man dies. Nothing is said about him being buried, interestingly enough. So it's very possible that his body is simply dumped with the refuse into the landfill outside of Jerusalem, known as Gehenna. That's where the unclaimed bodies of the poor were disposed of. The Jews borrowed the term Gehenna to refer to hell itself because it was where their garbage was burned. It was continually burning. There were always fires there. Always the smoke of their refuse rising up into the sky. And they likened that to the eternal torment, which would be the lot of the enemies of God. Well, then the rich man dies as well. He is buried. That's specifically mentioned. In fact, one can imagine the funeral service. There, there, there would have been professional mourners at this point in time in, in Israel. Someone with means would die, and people would be paid to come to the funeral, to weep and to wail. And you see Jesus dealing with this in different situations throughout his ministry as well. There would have been a, a lengthy eulogy, a, a, perhaps a fine carved wooden, wooden casket, a granite tombstone, perhaps even a mausoleum just for himself. He was a very wealthy man. But once he is dead, all that earthly power and position and influence and wealth remain behind. Not only do both men die, but also both men are conscious after death. Jesus indicates in the story that there is consciousness after we death, after we die. There are feelings, there are thoughts, there is the ability to communicate. And for some, there is the bitterest of disappointment. In Hades, which is the Greek word for the place of departed spirits, he lifts up his eyes and he is aware of Lazarus' presence with Abraham in what's called the bosom of Abraham. And he calls to Father Abraham and he believes that he may have some clout with Abraham since he is a Jew and Abraham is the father of the Jews. But a reversal is taking place. Lazarus is now rich. And the rich man is now poor. If we focus on the rich man, our natural response to this great reversal, this 
probably a degree of satisfaction. <laughs> Most of us probably tend to resent one who flaunts their wealth. This bloated rich guy has now become the beggar. And now he's pleading for what? Just a drop of water to cool off his tongue, verse 24. For he is in agony in the flame. On the other hand, if we focus on the poor man, if we focus on Lazarus, we may be tempted to take the common view that heaven is designed to balance the books economically, to square accounts so that those who have little here will have much later. But the rich man is not in hell because he is rich any more than Lazarus is in heaven because he is poor. That is not the point. The determination of who ends up where is made on an entirely different basis, as we're going to see. And so, this leads us into scene three, in which there is this great debate between the rich man and Abraham. The rich man wants Lazarus to come and relieve his torment. You see that there in verse 24, as we've mentioned. He cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, so he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. Now, even now, there seems to be some sense of entitlement here. I remember this guy. He laid outside my gate. Shouldn't he still be serving me? Send him. He still doesn't really understand what's happened. His begging, of course, is refused. Here's how Abraham puts it. Verse 25, Child, remember that during your life you received good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. These were the things on his own priority list. Beautiful clothes, fine food, influence, position, luxury. His investments were earthly, and they produced earthly dividends. But all the while he was collecting earthly wealth, he did nothing to build up treasure in heaven. Mm. And he has none. He has already enjoyed all the heaven that he is going to experience. And it's over now. And furthermore, Lazarus, we're told, cannot go from his place to the afterlife where the rich man is. Verse 26 says, besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed. So that those who wish to come over here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. There is a great chasm. It is not possible to move from one place to to the other. And the message is clear. One's eternal destiny is established at the time of death, and there is no possibility of change afterwards. You will hear some 
say that there is a second chance offered after death. There is no biblical basis for such a thing. That's right. Just the opposite. Mm -hmm. And reality is beginning to sink in. The rich man realizes that because of the great chasm, Abraham isn't able to show him mercy. Mm. He isn't going to get any water for his tongue. And he isn't going to escape eternal torment. This is never going to end for him. And so finally, coming to grips with that, he begins to think of his five brothers, who apparently are living much like he did on earth, and heading for the same end. And so he turns his attention to them. He says, I beg you, Father, that you... Send him to my father's house. He's still looking at Lazarus as his messenger boy. Hmm. Send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. His fear is, is, is that if someone does not warn his relatives about what awaits them, they too will follow their instincts to the same place, much like a herd of dumb sheep following one another off a cliff. One brother after the next, ending up here. But he has a plan. Send someone who has already seen the other side. Who can argue with that? His brothers would hear the bad news of his situation and would immediately repent, place their faith in God, and end up in Abraham's bosom. That's the plan. It makes sense to us. On a human level, an earthly level, it seems to make sense. But it won't work. Abraham says... They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. In other words, they have the revelation that God gave to his people to lead them to eternal life. That's right. There is nothing that they are doing which is leading them to this place of torment which they have not already been warned about. There is nothing that can rescue them from that place of torment that they have not already been told of. Mm. There was not a Jewish family anywhere without access to the Torah. Just as there is no one in our country who does not have access to a Bible. Mm. The message of salvation is clear in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. It is clear in the King James and the NIV and the New American Standard. It's clear in the Greek, and it's clear in the English, and it's clear in the native languages spoken by 99% of the people on the face of the earth. But the rich man continues to argue. No, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And the essence of what he's saying is, you know what? My brothers aren't big Bible readers. 
but, but a first-class miracle. <laughs> Someone coming back from the dead, that, that would get their attention. And Abraham says, no, it wouldn't. Even that would be futile. If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. See, the rich man has not denied his request because God is unwilling to give his brothers as much opportunity as possible. The request is denied because it won't work. And if you want proof, you just keep reading the scripture. Not long after Jesus told this story, the other Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha, died, and Jesus raised him from the dead. And you didn't see the religious leaders coming in mass, breaking down his door to repent and to believe on him. They renewed their conspiracy to kill him. Yep. A short time later, Jesus himself died for the sins of the world, was buried in a guarded tomb, raised by God, appeared to hundreds in his resurrection body. Did the religious leaders of Israel believe then? Or even most of the common people? Did they fall on their face in repentance? No. A few did. But most went right along with their everyday lives, ignoring the clear message that what we do with Christ in this life determines how we spend the next. Miracles do not save. The Word of God saves. Amen. God works through His Word. God works through the Gospel. Not miracles. Now what are we to take away from this? It leaves us with a lot of questions, some of which the story answers, some of which it does not. So let's ask the following questions then. What does the story not tell us about life after death? What might it tell us and what does it certainly tell us? What this story does not tell us about life after death. One concept this passage does not teach is that rich people all go to hell and poor people all go to heaven. That's not Christianity. That is an extreme view of what's called liberation theology, a Marxist understanding of Christianity. It's not biblical Christianity. In fact, Father Abraham himself was perhaps the second richest person in the Old Testament after Solomon. Note also that verse 25 says this, Abraham said, child, remember that during your life you received good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things, but now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. You know what word is not present in that verse? Because. Mm. There's not a cause and effect. Mm. 
Abraham's not saying you're here because you were rich and you received all these good things. He's not attempting to draw a direct causal relationship between the wealth of the rich man and his eternal destiny. On the other hand, to say that a person's economic station in life is totally unrelated to his eternal destiny would not be quite accurate either. Remember, this parable appears in a chapter devoted to the discussion of riches. And the man's riches do seem to have something to do with this situation. Namely, the fact that his attention to wealth kept him from giving attention to God and to his neighbors who were in need. Another concept which this passage is not revealing about life after death is the physical nature of heaven and hell. There's no attempt here to explain the geography of the afterlife. Just because the rich man looks up, for example, doesn't mean that hell is in the heart of the earth and and, and, and Abraham's bosom is in the clouds somewhere. As a matter of fact, Abraham uses the expression over here and over there in verse 26. I don't know where heaven and hell are located geographically right now. Sometimes he'll be going through the checkout stand at the supermarket, see the tabloids, story there that they, you know, they found the entrance to hell. <laughs> Hearing all the screams of the damned. <laughs> you should be laughing. That's obviously absurd. I'm rather inclined to believe that they are an entirely different dimension than we are. But the scripture just doesn't say anything about that. Eventually, Heaven, we know, this much we do know, heaven is going to be located right here. Mm -hmm. Because this world is going to be transformed. Hallelujah. And there will be a new heaven and a new earth. God is going to do this major remodeling project. Yes. And that is where we will spend eternity mm. if we are in nor is there any attempt here to describe the literal physical character of the afterlife. Abraham's bosom is obviously figurative, and so maybe the description of the torment as well. Some people get nervous when we start talking about the descriptions of heaven and hell being figurative, but there are reasons to understand that here. Finite language cannot adequate, adequately describe eternal concepts in a different state of being. Some of the figurative language is self-contradictory. The Bible often speaks of the outer darkness of hell, but at the same time there is flaming fire. So flaming fire and darkness in our experience are contradictory. Mm -hmm. Very words, lake of fire, have seemed totally paradoxical. They certainly would have to the first century mind. Now when I say that, understand this, I am not in any, in any sense lessening the awfulness of hell. What is clearly not figurative is the torment. And what we need to understand is that when we talk about metaphors and figures of speech, we're always moving 
the lesser to the greater. We're using an image to describe a reality. So if the flames, for instance, are figured, it doesn't mean that we are lessening the torments of eternal damnation. In fact, they are even more serious than we can imagine. Mm -hmm. If the rich man is not in torment, there is no reason to warn his brothers. Mm -hmm. Our response should be, if the symbol is so terrible, how awful must the reality be? Well, what might this parable teach about life after death? What might it teach? As soon as we ask this might question, we have moved away from speaking dogmatically. Mm -hmm. Theologians refer to what we're talking about this morning as the intermediate state, which is what we call that time between physical death and the resurrection. When it comes to the intermediate state, we're forced to speak less dogmatically because the scripture does not address the subject either in great detail or with great clarity. What seems to be the case is this. Before the death of Christ, believers who died could not enter into the presence of God because their sins had been forgiven only in anticipation of the death of, of, the death of Christ. Those sins were atoned for, which means covered. That's the language of the Old Testament. Sins were covered, but not washed away. They were covered by God's grace in anticipation of the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus. But not until that sacrifice was actually offered could those sins be buried in the deepest sea of forgetfulness and washed away as far as the east is from the west. Thus Abraham's bosom is viewed as a sort of waiting room to the presence of God. Some have understood this as part of the explanation for a phrase that made its way into the Apostles' Creed, which states that Jesus descended into hell for three days, into the earth, into Hades. Actually, they say, he descended into the place of the dead, not that place of torment, inhabited by the rich man, but rather the blessed portion known as Abraham's bosom. And then when he rose from the dead, he led captivity captive, taking those Old Testament saints into the presence of God. That is the empty paradise where he told the man on the cross, that he would be with Jesus in paradise, the waiting room of heaven. And he allowed his inhabitants then to enter the presence of God in the white robes of his righteousness that he had purchased with his blood. Mm -hmm. Now, as I said at the beginning, this might be true. I know nothing about it that particularly conflicts with 
other biblical truth. It seems to make sense, but at the same time, we don't want to be too dogmatic about things that Scripture does not make absolutely clear. Having said that, let's turn our attention to what is actually clearly taught. The most obvious fact that this story teaches is that there is conscious life and death for every human being. For some, that life is good. For others, that life is terrible. But clearly, death is not the cessation of existence. Theological liberals long ago abandoned the notion of conscious eternal punishment of the wicked in favor of universalism. This belief that everyone will eventually get to heaven, some in one way, some in another, all roads lead home, they say. With the possible exception of Hitler. <laughs> A less sophisticated version of this comes in the form of so-called near-death experiences, which tell us that when we die, we will be met by a, a warm light at the end of a long tunnel. We'll feel surrounded by love and we'll be met by our family and friends who have died before us. And all of this, regardless of one's relationship with Jesus Christ. Mm. Well, that's certainly not the rich man's experience. Yeah. Recently, some evangelicals have also been trying to soften the horror of hell by flirting with what they call annihilationism. This view that God annihilates the wicked rather than allowing them to suffer eternally. They just go out of existence. It's hard to get there from here. Universalism and annihilationism are impossible to square with this story and dozens of other passages in the Word of God. There is no happy ending for the rich man. Nor is there any relief for his pain. Another truth this parable definitely teaches is that after death, the decisions that affect eternity can no longer be made. During their lives on earth, the rich man and the beggar had choices, and upon those choices, their eternal fate depended. After death, the time to choose is over. It is appointed unto men once to die, and then the judgment, Hebrews 9.27. And this is the historic understanding of biblical Christianity. Even Dante put these words over the mouth of his inferno, Abandon all hope, ye who enter here. Mm. Finally, this parable teaches that everyone has had sufficient revelation and sufficient evidence to make a responsible decision about his or her relationship to God and to his son, Jesus Christ. I'm not going to address this morning the case of one who has never heard the gospel, never heard the name of Jesus. Clearly, no one in this story and no one in this room fits that category. The rich man had been exposed to Scripture. His predicament was due to his neglect of the Word of God, which had already been made known to him. And everyone in this room has heard enough 
to be accountable. And Jesus seems to imply that anyone who does not respond to the truth that he has will not be convinced even by a miracle. Sometimes we need, sometimes we tend to think, if only we could prove that Noah's Ark was really up there on Mount Ararat. Or the Shroud of Turin was the actual burial cloth of Jesus. Then people would flock to the church. No, they wouldn't. Jesus says it wouldn't make a bit of difference because people are dead in their sin and they are blind and they are deaf until the Holy Spirit of God opens them to the Word of God. Amen. And He does that through the proclamation of the Gospel. Yes. Perhaps the most important concept conveyed in this story is the tremendous seriousness <coughs> with which we should take life on this side of the grave. Perhaps this morning you're one of the five brothers strolling down life's road with great plans and prospects. Do not expect that God is going to send you a supernatural messenger from the other side. Nor is he likely to perform some miracle to bring you to your knees. God is not typically a shock therapist. You have the word of God in which Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You see, that great chasm is still there. The world's religions are all designed to help you build a bridge over that chasm. It may be a bridge of good works. It may be a bridge of ritual. But that bridge does not make it from one side to the other. Mm. There is no way you can build that bridge. The good news is that God, however, has already done it. Yes. The bridge is named Jesus. Yes. It's a narrow bridge. Mm -hmm. It's as narrow as a cross. And only those who come by way of the cross can come to the Father. Yep. Jesus said, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He cannot see it. He cannot enter it. If you're only birthed to the physical birth, you will someday die physically. And also spiritually. Mm -hmm. As the rich man. But if you are born twice, Physically and spiritually, the only death you will ever die is the death that Lazarus died. Physical death. Mm -hmm. You will experience life forever. Yes. Praise God. Life with your Savior. Yes. Eternal life is offered. Every one of us is born into sin. Every one of us has committed sin. Every one of us in our natural state is separated from God and under His wrath. 
condemned to eternal torment. But God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That whoever believes in Him might not perish, but have everlasting life. Turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. There is hope. There is joy. There is redemption. There is life. And it is only there in Christ and His cross. Mm. Father, thank You for the redemption which is ours. Father, we thank those who will spend eternity separated from You. And it moves us to cry out for mercy upon them, for grace. Send forth your gospel, Father. Bring those who are dead to life. Cause them to hear. Cause them to repent. Cause them to believe. And save them. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.